Father, we thank you for your word and for uh, your presence right now. You, it says in the scripture that you watch over your word to perform it. And so when we read your word, we're reading your intent, your purpose, and your determination to do the very things that we see in your word. So we come to this passage this morning with faith and expectation. It's a precious thing to have your word. It's a precious thing to be able to open it in public and talk together in your presence about what it means to us and how we're to respond to the oracles of God that are given to us on the pages of this, this Bible. And so we pray, Lord, for your abiding presence right now, which we know we have, but we continue to ask for because you told us to do that. So we continue to call on you, Lord, in faith, knowing that you promised to do that very thing. And we're grateful for that. Be with us right now for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So our message today is about suffering, which could seem like it might not be the most inspiring topic to talk about because nobody in their right mind wants to suffer, right? Um, and so, so why would we spend two weeks in a row, which is what we're going to do. This week will be me. Next week, uh, Logan's going to finish up this section on suffering in First Peter. Why would we uh, spend two weeks in a row talking about suffering? Um, well, first of all, because that's what First Peter chapters 3 and 4 are about. And so since we teach through Scripture in this church, it's something we have to talk about. That's part of the value of teaching through Scripture is that I personally don't like talking about suffering. I don't know about you. And so um, it could be a temptation just to never talk about it. We could just be a happy-go-lucky church going along and just preaching whatever, um, whatever makes me feel good, what makes you feel good. And, um, and maybe I'm trying to be honest about it, but yet I, without realizing it subconsciously, I'm skipping some things that God has put in here that when you go through the scripture, you just simply can't avoid it. It's just right there. And it's like, okay, well, I guess we got to deal with this because this is what we've committed to do. And here we are. It's right here in our face, right? <laughs> so um, I'm going to make a, a, an effort, a valiant effort, I, if I say so myself, to not be in your face today, but to, to bring the heart of Jesus in what this really means to us. What is it really about? So first, because it's in the scripture. Second, we have 2 Timothy 3.12 that says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so as a Christian who wants to follow Jesus and wants to live a godly life, you're going to experience suffering sooner or later. It's a promise. And so it'd be kind of nice to know how to deal with that when it happens, wouldn't it? Um, but, but then third, and this is what I rest on and what I want to bring today by God's power, by the Holy Spirit, is that there's really no good reason not to talk about it. Now, we might assume talking about suffering would be a big downer, but what if I told you that a message about suffering could potentially be the most inspiring message you ever heard or ever will hear? Um, what is the most inspiring thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity? Isn't it the cross of Jesus and his resurrection? And that message is called the gospel. And the gospel is a message about suffering. It's about Jesus dying. And it is the most inspiring message that has ever been spoken. So 
a message about suffering does not have to be a downer at all. In fact, the opposite. And that's, what, that's the faith we want to bring to this passage today. Um, our title today is True Grit. Anybody ever see a movie called True Grit? There was one with John Wayne in it a long time ago, and then there was a remake recently. And, and if you watch either one, um, I'm, I'm not comparing that in, in any way, shape, or form to what God is saying. But it is indicative of something that every human has the potential to reach down and find, which is a determination. And I really think True Grit is not about the John Wayne character. It's about that girl. That's where the, the True Grit really came in in, in the remake. Um, it's about that determination that no matter what happens, you're not going to turn away from your purpose. Nothing is going to move you from your purpose. We talk about discovering purpose. When we truly understand our purpose, we understand what was paid to make it possible. It should move us in a way that we are, have that kind of determination, that true grit to say, I'm not going to turn away. Nothing is going to turn me away from what God has called me to do in this earth. Um, and our series is True Grace. And so, we, so in talking about true grit, we don't want to ever move away from true grace. Because the true grit, the supply of that is not from us. Even though I said there's something in every human spirit, yet that's not actually what God, God's not calling you to dig down in your human spirit and find this. He's saying, trust me, it's going to come from him. Um, so true grace, true grit. Each one of our messages in this true grace passage is true grace and then something that flows out of that true grace practically in your life. And in this section, it's, it's true grit that flows out of the grace of God. Um, God has a specific grace that he gives us to empower us to not give up when we face suffering. But before we get to our, our passage today, I, want to, I just want to make a couple of comments. First of all, and... This is just an area of confusion that I found in a lot of Christians because there's, there's just misunderstanding of who God is. Even in a lot of Bible teachers, there's a misunderstanding of who God is. And there's a, there, there's a teaching of God from the perspective of fallen man misunderstanding his character because we project our own character onto God. God does not want you to suffer. He, he absolutely does not want you to suffer. That is not what this is about. This is not about God wanting his children to suffer. I have children. I do not want my children to suffer. If you have children, you don't want them to suffer. And God says, he's a better father than you are. Okay. Um, he's a better father than you've ever seen. Um, you know, he talks in, in uh, Luke 11. If you are a father and you have a little child, a toddler who comes to you and says, I'm hungry, you will not give them something else instead of the food that they're asking for. You won't give them a rock or a snake or a scorpion and laugh and make fun of them because they're hungry and you're not giving them what they want. That's, that's, a, that's a very heinous kind of person that would do something. That's satanic, okay? God says, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to his kids if you ask? And say, if you ask... For the Holy Spirit, God will certainly give you the Holy Spirit. And so there's, a, there's just a, Scripture portrays your Heavenly Father 
as kind and generous and, and truly caring about you and not wanting to harm you, not wanting to bring you into difficulty. He doesn't want to do that at all. Well, then why is there suffering? Uh, the, how many people know that that's like the question of the ages, right? Um, I'm not going to try to give some kind of metaphysical answer to that question. That's a, everybody's arguing about that. But I, I can give you part of the answer. God doesn't want you to suffer. He wants people saved. Saved, healed, delivered, and discipled. That's his vision. That's his passion. And you're part of that solution to make that happen. Sometimes people who've already been saved have to put their own life on the line for that to happen. And that is the origin of a tremendous amount of the suffering that we're talking about in this passage right here. It's like if someone's drowning in ice water and you're the only one who can save them, but you got to dive in the icy water to do it. Or, or in a war and your friend is wounded on the battlefield and, and so you get shot and full of shrapnel getting them off the field. So no one wants you shot or freezing, but it's worth it to save them. And so that's number one. God doesn't want you to suffer. He wants people saved. Then number two is don't be afraid of this stuff. If you ever have to face anything like this, God will give you grace. Now, if, if, if this subject today makes you anxious or insecure or fearful, I just want to encourage you, don't stress about it. Because, you see, you're not facing persecution right now, so there's no grace to face persecution in your life right now. And so if the, it's not a weird thing that the idea scares you. That's not weird. That's normal. Don't feel insecure about the fact that you're scared of this stuff maybe happening to you someday. The, the, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble. What, what is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that God's not giving you grace for tomorrow. That's why he doesn't want you to worry about it, because you don't have any supply for tomorrow. You know, when the children of Israel were going out to gather the manna that God gave them, he only gave them manna for today. And if they tried to store it up, it would rot. And he said, don't try to collect manna for tomorrow. I'm not giving you manna for tomorrow. God is not giving you grace for tomorrow. He's only giving you grace for what you're facing right now. That's why he says, don't worry about it. It's not, don't worry, be happy. It's not like that song where it's like, oh, just ignore reality. No. God's grace is powerful, but he gives it to you day by day, and he asks you to walk by faith and trust him that when tomorrow comes, you will have grace for tomorrow. When next week comes, you will have grace for next week. When next year comes, you will have grace for next year. Today, just, just trust the Lord for today, and he will take care of you. He will. So that would be what I would encourage you as we're going into this is, number one, don't misunderstand who God is and think he wants you to suffer because he doesn't. Number two, don't worry about tomorrow or be fearful. If it comes, he'll give you grace. If it hasn't come yet, you don't have grace for it. That's normal. Okay? I hope that encourages you. So I want to tell you a little phrase here, and I'm going to repeat it. True grit happens because you're grateful Jesus died for you. You see the people he died for as worth sacrificing for. And you're trusting his grace to empower you. True grit happens 
because you're grateful Jesus died for you. You see the people he died for as worth sacrificing for. And you're trusting his grace to empower you. And with that mindset, nothing can stop you. So let's read now in 1 Peter 3.13. 1 Peter 3.13 says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Where else have you heard that? Isn't it in the Beatitudes? Isn't it in the Sermon on the Mount? And many other places in the New Testament? Jesus said it often. His apostles said it often. When you suffer for doing good, when you suffer for doing good, the Bible says over and over and over again repeatedly, you are blessed. Not only are you blessed, but it is a mark of a true disciple when this happens in your life. It says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. When people are threatening you, don't be afraid of it. You may have experienced this, maybe in a job situation where you were being just uh, doing what you were supposed to do, being, uh, being good to the people around you, not being uh, lazy or ugly or in people's faces. But because of your Christian faith, some people started uh, being ugly to you. Okay, that is an example of persecution if that happens. Um, but, verse 15, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, which happens, people will make up stuff about you because you're a Christian and they are they are not happy with your Christian faith. They, that what happens is they feel guilty because your Christian faith, in spite of you not saying anything negative to them at all, they experience your Christian faith as condemnation on themselves. They experience it that way in their inner man. Do you know why they experience that? Because it really is condemnation of them. The fact that you have received Christ and you walk with them, with him means that they, having not done so, and knowing that they have not done so, they are condemned. And the Holy Spirit, when you go, here's what happens. When you get close to those people and you're living out Christ in a, in a gentle, kind, godly way, there's something radiating from you in the Holy Spirit. It's called conviction. And people who don't know God are either going to smell salvation or death. That's what the Bible says. They're going to smell, you're the fragrance of Christ. You smell like Jesus. And to, to some of the people, Jesus smells like salvation. And to some of the people, Jesus smells like death. And when you come around and they smell death, they blame it on you. So that's what happens. So just understand that, that you have, Jesus said, if they hated me, they'll hate you. So having a good conscience, I read this, but I'm going to read it again. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, which they will do, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So they're going to lie about you, but it's going to make them, because you never, ever answer evil for evil, because you never defend yourself, you never go on the attack with them, but you exemplify Christ, you're gentle and good in all your interaction, then while they are in the process of lying about you, they will feel shame and guilt on themselves 
for the evil way that they are treating you and they'll realize I'm mistreating this person. What I'm saying is not true at all. And they may still keep doing it, but the whole time they're doing it, they're going, Ugh, I feel slimy doing this, but I'm going to keep doing it because they make me feel bad. Yeah, that's, what, that's the dynamic, okay? And it says in verse 74, it is better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, okay? So this topic today is not about any and every kind of suffering. We're not talking about seemingly random suffering like getting sick or having a car accident. That is a different topic. That needs to be addressed too, but it's not what we're talking about, okay? Um, we're also not talking about suffering for doing wrong, like going to prison for committing a crime. That's called justice. This is, this is a separate topic when people hurt you because you're a Christian. That's the kind of suffering we're talking about today. In, in other words, for no real reason. They attack you essentially for doing good. You ever had anybody, you're just like, man, I didn't do anything to them, and they're just treating me so bad. That's what it's talking about. And, and it can, if you don't understand what Scripture says, you can be surprised and mystified that this is happening. And scripture says, don't be surprised. See, I, it's like, I told you in the Word that this is going to happen, so don't act like this is some weird thing. It's not weird. It's normal for Christians, okay? <laughs> He's just telling you how to process it and how to understand it when it happens. And it says, when that happens, it's better, which can be also weird. What? That doesn't feel better to me. That feels lousy. Well, why is it better? Well, it's because God wants people saved. That's going to be a theme today. God wants people saved. And most people don't think they need to be saved. Have you ever noticed that? You go around witnessing to people, you start sharing the gospel, they go, well, I don't need that because I'm good with God. Oh, yeah? And you're like living like a terrorist? <laughs> yeah, but I've never actually killed anyone, so I'm good. You know, people come up with every person that I talk to, no matter what their life is like, has come up with some kind of justification why they're okay with God. Or else they choose, if they can't figure that out, then they choose not to believe he exists. You know, it comes when they push down to shove, either they justify themselves in their own mind or they pretend like he's not there. I haven't met anyone who doesn't follow God, who, does, who has not built up some kind of pyramid of teetering, tottering, concepts to try to make themselves feel okay about the horrible way they're living. Anybody else discovered the same thing as you're sharing? Okay. Some of you guys that have your hands up, I know you witness all the time. So that's, that's a good uh, confirmation of what I'm talking about. Um, so, yeah. So um, most people think they're fine like they are. And God wants to break through that deception. And, and here's what, so here's the thing about grace. God doesn't want you living any other way except by grace. And there are a million reasons why, but one of the really big reasons why it's super important for you to live by grace is because grace empowers you to do the impossible. And it blows people's minds. It absolutely blows people's minds. Remember a couple of weeks back, I talked about fasting in the grace of God, fasting in the spirit. Does anybody remember when I shared about that? And the stuff that you can do when you fast in the spirit, when you fast by the grace of God, it, it, it's literally easy. And, it's, and anyone who's ever tried it in their own strength realizes it's just next to impossible. Okay, so 
That's just one example. And you can go from that to anything and everything. Today we're talking about suffering. How can someone go through the stuff that the martyrs went through? You read Fox's Book of Martyrs. And, and it, it is scary to read it, the stuff that they did to those people. And you go, oh my goodness, that's so scary. I would never want to face. It can scare you to death reading Fox's Book of Martyrs. And then you understand, though, as you, as you think and pray and, and meditate on it, you realize these guys were, were covered in grace. And the entire Roman Empire, which was pagan at the time, was won to Christ by observing the mind-blowing grace of God on those people that enabled them to go do the impossible. Um, you know, Muslims can endure horrible things, but they don't do it with the love of Jesus. They don't do it forgiving the people that actually are doing it to them and praying for them with, with genuine concern while they're being tortured to death. You understand? That is, a, that is an unmitigated, impossible miracle. And, and thousands of people did that over and over and over. And the Romans saw it. And one by one by one, the, the Roman people became persuaded by the undeniable grace of God on those martyrs that this is the, true, the only true faith. That Jesus is real because these people could not do what they're doing if Jesus was not real. And this is why you need to make sure you are not living in your own strength. Because if you live in your own strength, you're never ever going to be able to do anything except what you're able to do. Which could be amazing compared to other people. You might be really gifted, naturally. You might be smart. You might be capable. You might be beautiful. You might be athletic. You might be uh, a great musician. You know, you don't understand what I'm saying. You might have all kinds of things that you can use to glorify God, and I'm not minimizing that. That's important. But that is not the stuff that God's proud of. God, Scripture says, God is not impressed by the strength of a man's legs or the skill of of a musician's fingers. What is he impressed by? Jesus explained over and over what he's impressed by. Faith. That's what he's, and you know what you can do by faith? Anything. There's no limit. Because it's not you doing it, it's God. And what are God's limits? There are none. There are no limits. And so God wants to lift you out of the, the human limitations of what you personally are capable of doing in your own strength, which could be amazing. And, and you know, we want to encourage everybody to go all out and do everything you can and, and spend all your talents and abilities for Jesus. But there's so much more. There's so much more than that. And this is what grace is calling us. Grace is calling us to depend on him for the power and to glorify him for the outcome. Because we admit, like Paul said, Paul said, I work harder than everyone else. Every other, there's not an apostle on the face of the earth, Paul said, that works harder than me. But not I, but the grace of God in me. He, he gave all the credit to the grace of God. He said, I'm working harder, but it, 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 he would say like what I'm saying about Fast. He would say, I'm working harder than everyone else. I'm getting shipwrecked. I'm getting stoned. I'm freezing. I'm starving. I'm naked. And it's easy. What? Man, I don't want to live a life like that. Paul says, oh, but you don't know the glory. The glory. He says, I boast in my weakness that the power of God will rest on me. What is that power? It's God's grace. 
That's what it is. Don't you want the power of God to rest on you? Yes, I do. And so we admit our weaknesses and we press into his power. This is what True Grit is talking about. It's the power of God. It's not you. Don't be afraid of it. If, if someone attacks you for being a Christian and you're only being kind of gentle and good, you know what that does? That gives God a chance to show them what's really in their heart. That they really do need God. And he's using you to demonstrate that as they attack you. And by the grace of God, you do the impossible. You don't get mad. You don't go after them. And they're like, what? What's going on? I never saw that before. Well, and now they're coming and they're blessing me. They're giving me something that I don't deserve. They're, they're praying for me. What? And then they start, it starts to germinate in their heart. You know, Paul, uh, when he was attacking Christians, you know, he, he, he helped, he presided over the martyrdom of Stephen. And shortly after that, Jesus appeared to him and said, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? There's a goad in the conscience when you see that, I mean, Stephen's face was like an angel. They're killing him. He says, God, forgive him. <laughs> and gives his spirit up. And Saul is watching that. And he's like, I couldn't do what he just did. It's a goad. And you can be a goad of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people. Don't be afraid of that. It says, always be ready to explain why you have hope. In other words, be ready to save people. That's what that means. Be ready to save people because God wants to use you for that purpose. Yes. Have your personal God story ready to share. That's what he's saying. We call it a testimony, right? It's your personal God story. You say, well, I don't have some kind of story of, you know, being some kind of drug addict and, and getting saved from the ashes of a horrible life. That's not my story. That's not a God story. The God story is is the working of the grace of God in your life, depending on him and seeing him move, whatever that looks like. It's your story. It's not somebody else's story. And, you know, my wife Vanessa doesn't remember a time in her life when she didn't have Jesus in her heart. She's got awesome God stories because she's looking to him and trusting him and he's working. And so as you look to God and trust in him and give him room to work, you start building up your God story. When someone says, why do you have hope? You say, well, that's obvious. I mean, God's in my life. Look at what he's done for me. Boom, 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 boom. He did this. I prayed. He did that. I had this obstacle. He removed it. You tell those stories. That's why I have hope. Not only that, but just read your Bible. Everything in there is true. I, I follow the Bible. And every time I trust what it says, God moves. Your God story. Have that ready on the tip of your tongue. Think of it like knowing the Heimlich Maneuver or CPR. Right? You're ready if something happens. So consider your personal testimony to be in the same category as life-saving stuff that you need to work on in your own personal life so that you are prepared. The Bible tells you you need to be prepared. Okay? So that's God's instruction to you. Be prepared. It's your own homework between you and God. Go work on your God story. If you go work on your God story, you know what? You say to yourself, you know what? I don't have a lot. Well, then that's an indication. 
Go engage with God. Spend time with the Holy Spirit. Start trusting him. Start praying for things. Start expecting him to move instead of doing it yourself. Start depending on the grace of God. If you consistently depend on the grace of God instead of rolling up your sleeves and doing it yourself, you will have a God story. You will absolutely have a God story. Because God moves when people depend on his grace. He loves for you to depend on his grace. That's where he loves to work. So do it. Does that sound forceful? That's, God's forceful about this. He, he wants you to trust in his grace. True grit happens because you're grateful Jesus died for you. You see the people he died for is worth sacrificing for, and you're trusting his grace to empower you. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype. Antitype means like a symbol, uh, uh, an analogy, which now saves us. Baptism. So baptism, the Noah's ark is an analogy for baptism, and we're going to see why in just a minute. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. So anyone, so it says baptism saves us, but it doesn't save you from hell. It saves you from a bad conscience, just so you know. That's what it says here. It doesn't say baptism saves you from hell. There are many dimensions of salvation. Don't think every time you see the word save that it always means the same thing. God wants to save you from all of the consequences of sin in your life, which are manifold. And hell's not the only one. Hell's the most important one. But just getting saved from hell and being still a child of the devil is no state to be in. And so God wants to work in everything. So he wants to save you uh, from a bad conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So if you're curious what this means about Jesus preaching to disobedient spirits in prison, uh, this was not a second chance for anyone. It's not a purgatory. It's nothing like that has nothing to do with that at all. Hebrews 9 verse 27 says, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So your opportunity to trust in Jesus and be counted with the righteous is while you're still breathing. I always say, if you're still breathing, there's still hope. But once you leave this life, if you have not transition from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, there is no hope for you, period. There are no second chances. And this is not a second chance. Then what is it? Well, what happened is when Jesus died on the cross, and some people may not be aware of this, but he, Jesus taught about this in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man to, get, to give you some context about where you can read about it if you're not sure what I'm saying right now. Today, if you are a believer and you, your life in this world that we live in right now ends, your life doesn't end, but your life here ends, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he is in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. So that there is no soul sleeper and you don't go to purgatory. You don't go to any other place. When you, if you're a believer in Jesus and you depart from this body, you go immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ. But it has not always been that way. Because the reason you can go to be with Jesus right now is because he died for you and rose from the dead. Before he died and rose from the dead, redemption was not purchased yet. And so there was no 
right for any human being to go anywhere except to the place of punishment because we were all condemned. However, God gave credit in advance to people who believed him. And so by faith, what God, if, if you trusted in God by faith, that he was going to solve your problem, he would count that as righteousness. And so he set up a separate place in hell that was protected called paradise. And if you died in faith, he would, you would still go into that place. And it's not technically called hell, it's called Sheol, but it, it's the grave is what the word means. It doesn't automatically mean punishment. It means everyone goes to the grave when they die until Jesus rose from the dead. And so you would go to the same place, but he, he fixed a giant chasm and he, created, and he put a place there called paradise so that those who died in faith would go to paradise even though they were down there. And they were just waiting and hoping that the dilemma they were in would be resolved eventually. And that's what this is referring to. This is when the dilemma was resolved. When Jesus died on the cross, he went to the same place. And he went there primarily to collect the people in paradise and bring them with him to glory. But he also announced to the disobedient spirits who are not in paradise that you are justly condemned and they are saved because you rejected God and they believed. And that is what he preached. He, he did not go down to give anyone a second chance. He went to, he went to collect those who, were, they were basically saved on credit. And now the bill was paid, so he collected them and took them up with him to heaven. And those who did not take advantage of the opportunity to believe God, were, it was announced to them that you are condemned because you re refuse to believe God. Make sense? And, and the tie-in between Noah's Ark and baptism, that's kind of cool. The Ark represents Jesus. The water represents baptism. And uh, notice that when the floodwaters came, Noah was already in the Ark. The Ark represents Jesus. So when you are baptized, you're already in Jesus. It, baptism is for believers. So you're already in him, just like Noah was already in the Ark. And then what does the water do? Well, the water does two things. Number one, it lifts the ark and everyone in it up above the world. And everything that is not in the ark dies. So baptism is, a, is an act of faith and obedience to the Lord in which your conscience is cleansed and you are separated from the world and the influence of wor the world in your life and you are lifted up out of a worldly lifestyle into a lifestyle that is devoted to Christ. And there is a spiritual power for your life when you obey the Lord in baptism. So um, we're having a baptism service this summer. If you need to be baptized, let us know on your Connect card or call or email the church office because we want to get uh, everybody together on that list of people who need to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized since you were born again, it is an important step. Since you were born again, a lot of people have been baptized. Like I was baptized as a teenager and then I went on to live like the devil for many years after that. I know I was not a believer when I was baptized. For me, it was a social baptism. It was something all the kids 
uh, you know, at that age, 14, 15, had already done, and I was like, Johnny, come lately to it. So I said, well, I guess I need to get this over with. Um, so really think and pray. Have I been baptized since I was born again, since my nature changed and I started following God? And if that has not happened yet, um, you need to know Jesus commands it. And so it's not just a good idea. It's, it's a basic part of following Jesus is to be baptized as a believer. But the point in verse 18 is Jesus didn't suffer because it's cool to suffer. And he didn't suffer for doing anything bad. He, just, he was without sin, but he suffered for one reason and one reason only, and that is to bring us to God. And that is the same reason why God calls us to be willing to suffer at those times when it becomes necessary, is in order to help bring more people to God. So true grit happens because you're grateful Jesus died for you, and you see the people he died for as worth sacrificing for, and you're trusting his grace to empower you. Chapter 4. It says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he, sh uh, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you because you won't join in with their party lifestyle. In regard to, okay, yeah. And they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So will you, by the way. We all will. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. See, it was preached to those who are dead, not for another chance, but to make it clear to those because they came before and they didn't have clarity. They didn't understand fully what was going on. So it's really more of an explanation of your destiny. The destiny is not changed by the preaching. It's just, so now you know why that's your destiny. Uh, for this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged. See, that they might be judged, not that they might have another chance, but that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So um, our mission at Hill City Church is to know Christ, discover purpose, and impact lives for eternity. Now, why do we focus on impacting lives for eternity? Well, because as we grow to know Christ more, we understand that that's what he did for us. And that's what he has in mind for us. For us to be engaged in the same thing that he is engaged in. Saving souls and helping people grow and take the next step in their walk with Jesus. And it says, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. So saying, align your mind with the mind that Christ had when he went to the cross and died for you. That's the mind that you're called to have. So be grateful you're not going to hell. But remember, a lot of others still are. Have the same mind Jesus did. He, he died so you can be saved, and he's calling us to have a similar mindset. So God, God is challenging us, challenging us here to think deeply about what you're living for. Um, everybody's nodding their heads. That's awesome. But consider what you're actually practically living for right now. That's what he's challenging us on. On the one hand, living for God means you are on duty. That, it literally means that. If you're living for God, you are on duty. That's a duty God is worthy of because, number one, he's God. 
And number two, he gave his only begotten son unconditionally to save you from perishing as long as you trust and believe in who Jesus is and what he did for you. Okay, but it's a duty. And it does involve suffering at times and sacrifices and living for others instead of yourself. That, that's what it looks like. It's not like a thing where we just go, okay, I'm going to believe in Jesus, but I'm going to keep living for myself. That's not how it works. But so, so that's the other hand. The other hand is living for yourself. And here it's called doing the will of the Gentiles. You'll find this throughout the New Testament is this, this reasoning with us saying, consider the difference between a life of living for self versus a life living for the will of God. And what those two look like and the outcome of those two types of lives. And make a, make, think deeply about this and consider your manner of life. Is your life lining up with what, who you say you are in Christ? That's the question. That's the challenge. And so it's called uh, doing the will of the Gentiles here. Lewdness, lust, drinking, partying, so on. I'm not going to go through the whole list again. Really sounds like me before I knew Jesus. It's been said that if it isn't worth dying for, it isn't worth living for. So my life before Jesus, living for myself, I had no purpose. I was empty. I was hopeless. It's a life. If you think about life without God, most of us would spend the first 20 to 25 years of our life going to school, preparing for a lifetime of work. And then working the rest of your life so you, so you can party until you die. Maybe you'll get to retire in the last five or 10 years and get stuck in a nursing home and you know, have people wheel you around and do stuff to you that you don't want them to do. Sounds pretty exciting, huh? That, that's a life without purpose. Um, and, and then, I didn't believe it at the time because I was in rejection of God, but... Um, then you got to face God after you die, and you got to explain what you did with your life, which was, for me was nothing. I was spinning it on myself. Uh, when this is over, I've already mentioned this, when this is over, we all have to give an account to God. But a life spent for others doing the will of God is a life of purpose and meaning and full of hope and full of joy because your treasure is seeing others grow and thrive and be filled with the, the life of God and and the, the joy that you receive when you realize some of that growth in their life is because of s- stuff that I sowed into their life and sacrifices that I made for them. When I spent my life on them, and, it, and now I'm seeing the fruit of that in their life, and I rejoice in that. It's a life worth living for, and it's a life worth dying for. True grit happens because you're grateful Jesus died for you. You see the people he died for is worth sacrificing for, and you're trusting his grace to empower you. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That's that grace right there. So the manifold grace of God. See, whatever you're doing, do it with the ability that God supplies. That in all things, God may be glorified. 
When you start doing the impossible by the grace of God, you just have no other place to go except to glorify God for the outcome. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen? So sometimes the sacrifices we make for others aren't about persecution. Sometimes the sacrifices look more like a living sacrifice of daily service. That's in Romans 12. One, it talks about a living sacrifice, right? Um, and that's why this passage that, that we just now, this little short passage we just now read, is in the middle of a section on suffering. It's about, this is about serving. Well, but it's the same dynamic going on. It's gratefulness to Jesus. It's these people Jesus died for are worth sacrificing for, and you're trusting his grace to empower you but it's expressed as service. And so it says pray. When you pray for others, that's an act of service for them. See, you're spending your life, you're spending your time pouring out your heart to God for someone beside yourself. That's service. You're serving them by praying. And be motivated by fervent love. So fervent love is active love. Fervent love makes a a mother jump in front of a car to save her, her child. That's the only thing that'll make a human being do something like that. Uh, fervent love makes parents walk all over the neighborhood, which I've done, looking for a child that didn't come home on time. Fervent love is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. Fervent love is costly, but it doesn't feel like it's costly because the love makes it feel like there's no other choice but to do the thing that fervent love motivates you to do. Fervent love can't keep from taking action because fervent love burns in your heart and won't leave you alone. You can't not go out and look for your child. And so because of fervent love, you can't help doing the thing for your church family that God gifted you to be able to do. Whatever your gift is, serving people, prophecy, helping, whatever it is, you can't help doing it because you see the need and you know you can meet that need and fervent love burns in your heart and won't leave you alone. I just want to share, this is the last bit is about serving. If you're looking for a place to serve here, we've tried to make it super easy for you. Just go to our website, hillcitychurch.life, and go to the Connect menu, and you'll see, under that menu, you'll see Join an Impact Team. And if you select that, you'll see a list of everything that you can get involved in, and um, hopefully you can find something that's aligned with your heart. And if you take Discovery Pathway that starts again on June 3rd, we'll explain how we do everything here at Hill City. And the sign-up for that's on the website too. So I just want to make you guys aware that we're trying to open those doors for people and make it easy. Um, But whatever God's calling us to, he gives us grace for it. You know, there was a martyr who was going to be burned at the stake and his friends were next in line. and, And so they asked when he was burning, if God's grace wasn't enough, hold up one finger. But if God's grace is enough, hold up two fingers, and they were afraid, as I think anyone would be, and so they wanted to know what they were facing. You know, is God going to come through when we have to be in the same place? Uh, but when the time came and they looked to see what his answer was, they saw he was holding up three fingers. His grace is more than enough. Let's stand up. As we close, and our prayer teams are here, I want to encourage you guys to press into the grace of God. Don't be afraid. Don't misunderstand who God is. His grace is gracious. And His grace is more than enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.
for the grace of Jesus Christ that is more than enough, that is abundant. And we pray today, Lord, uh, that the word that we received would bear fruit in our hearts and lives, that we would have power from you, Lord, to do the things that are impossible for us. But all things are possible for you, God. So we ask this, we give you honor, praise, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.